Get ready to uncover the chilling true story of one of America's most notorious and elusive serial killers. The phantom killer of Texarkana terrorized a small town with a string of brutal murders, leaving investigators baffled and residents living in fear. With a unique modus operandi and sinister signature, this enigmatic murderer still haunts the imaginations of true crime enthusiasts and horror fans alike. Join us today as we delve into the details of the Phantom's crimes and the investigation that followed, as well as the shocking theories that still swirl around this unsolved case. Today, the Phantom Killer of Texarkana. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon Wamsir. One of my writers, Kevin, is going to write me. He's, well, he's written me a script. I'm going to read it. I've never read it before. I'm not familiar with The Phantom Killer of Tex Arcana. I'm sorry I'm sounding a little nasally today. We forgive you. I don't... I feel a little bit under the weather, but for some reason I have, like, a massively stuffed up nose, and I've blown my nose, like, seven times, and it's just sore, and it's not helping. So you're just going to have to bear with it, because, uh... Uh, it's one of the hazards of the job, right? You just gotta get on. You gotta crack on. Let's go. Let's go. Texarkana was a moderate-sized community with a total population of just under 30,000. I say it was a community rather than a city because it was actually two cities in one. The area got its name because it straddles the Texas-Arkansas border. I thought Arkansas was called Arkansas for the longest time. <laughs> you know, you'd see it and you'd be like, Arkansas. I'm pretty sure there's some videos out there of me being like, yeah, 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 in Arkansas. <laughs> Because there's another state called Kansas. Why would you do this to me, America? It was a safe area, at least for the most part. The city was young, having only been founded in 1874, and it wasn't yet fully separated from its early frontier days. Most of the city was nice, the sort of place people would picture when they think of the good old days. Residents wouldn't have to bother to lock their doors at night, and it was common just to sit on one's porch at night and talk to passers-by. Did this really exist? Or is this like the kind of rose-tinted version of the past? I always think of like 1950s America tends to be this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, nuclear weapons. The Cold War. <laughs> the idea children being taught in school to like duck and cover under the desks because that's going to save them from a nuclear bomb. People were living in fear of that, right? However, the city had been built around a railroad junction that connected Texas and Arkansas. Trains would bring through rowdy soldiers, and there were lots of young male laborers who worked in lumber and oil. Drunken fistfights and knife fights were common, and shootings, while rarer, didn't come as a huge surprise. This sounds like the sort of place where I would be locking my door at night. When these violent crimes occurred, people would read about them in the Texarkana Gazette and be momentarily dismayed at the plights of youth before quickly moving on. They were small, isolated incidents. The people had grown used to them, but they didn't feel like they defined their city. On Friday, February the 22nd, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis took his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, out for a night on the town. It was your typical dinner and movie, followed by parking somewhere secluded so things could get a little bit more intimate. It was around 11.45pm when Jimmy parked his Chevy at the well-known Lover's Lane, but it would only be about 10 minutes before their good time would be rudely interrupted. They had been so preoccupied with one another that they didn't notice the other car pull up and park nearby. An extremely bright light suddenly shone upon the couple from the driver's side window. Though partially blinded by the light, they could see that in the person's other hand, held just below the flashlight, was a gun aimed directly at them. Jimmy tried to tell the man that he had the wrong person, but he was told, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Both Jimmy and Mary exited the car through the driver's side door. Jimmy was ordered to take off his goddamn britches. He did as he was told, but it didn't matter. The attacker pistol-whipped him twice, sending his unconscious body to the ground. When the butt of the gun connected with Jimmy's head, the sound of his skull cracking was so loud that Mary thought it was the sound of the pistol being fired. 
oh, and this is, I mean, even today, that sounds pretty fatal. And this is like 1940s. They didn't have like, they, could they put people's skulls back together in the 1940s? Was this 1940s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It doesn't sound, he's, he's not going to make it. So I'm assuming this witness accounts because we know, well, Jimmy's probably dead. Uh, we, the killer, we know this is an unsolved one. So Mary survives. Mary tried to maintain her composure, thinking that the masked man was just trying to rob them. After all, a gunman with a mask may let you live, so it was in her best interests to cooperate in any way possible. She grabbed Jimmy's wallet to show the attacker that they didn't have any money, but she was also struck and sent to the ground. He then told Mary to get up and run. She did as she was told and began running towards a ditch, but the attacker ordered her to run up the road instead. As she ran, she saw an old car parked just off the road. Not realizing that this car had almost certainly been how the gunman got to their location, she veered towards the car, hoping there might be someone inside who could help her. By the time she saw that the car was empty, the masked man was upon her once more. He demanded to know why she was running. Wait, why are you running? You told me to run! You have a gun! You're scary! I was doing what I was told! When Mary said that she was running because he had told her to, the attacker called her a liar and knocked her to the ground. He then began raping her with a barrel of his gun. Well... I don't want to say, like, this wasn't dark already, but that took a turn. The attacker suddenly became spooked when he saw a pair of headlights approaching from the distance and he vanished from the scene. Either the old car had been parked far enough off the road to be out of sight, or the driver was an because they didn't stop to help Mary. Still wearing the high heels that she had worn for her date, she fled on foot, desperately looking for help. The first house that she would find was roughly half a mile away, and she awoke up the residents to have them call the police. While Mary had been fleeing, Jimmy regained consciousness. Whoa, okay, good. His skull cracked so loudly she thought a gun was going off. Oh my god. He was able to flag down a passing car and have them contact the police as well. Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley arrived at the scene with three other officers within 30 minutes, but that seems like an extraordinarily slow response for such a violent crime. Well, we don't know how far away it was, do we? They were at. That doesn't sound unreasonable. It's also the past. <laughs> I'm sure the cars were pretty slow. The couple was taken to a hospital to have their wounds treated. Mary was hospitalized for the night with a minor head wound, while Jimmy would spend several days recovering from multiple skull fractures. Despite the head injuries, both were able to remember the events that transpired in detail. Unfortunately, while they could describe exactly what happened to them, describing their attacker proved a bit harder thanks to the mask. The mask is also what saved your life. Like, it's always one of those things that she Mary's absolutely right. Like, if in, in movies, um, so, uh, as soon as the the criminals reveal the faces, like, ah, oh, they're gonna have to kill them. They're gonna have to kill them. That was a mistake. Oh no. Police had some serious issues with Jimmy and Mary's descriptions of the man, which they labelled as inconsistent. Um, yeah. Look, I don't think they're lying. <laughs> what is their motivation? I think it's just well, one, it's eyewitness testimony. It's notoriously unreliable, and that's probably especially true if you're the victim of a violent crime. Jimmy's head was literally cracked open. Personally, I take exception to them writing it off as inconsistent, but I'll let you decide. The man was wearing a white mask with holes cut out for his eyes, so it was less of an actual mask and more like a pillowcase or another piece of white fabric that had been fastened around his head with some eye holes added. Was this guy in the KKK? Mary said she could catch small glimpses of the man through the eye holes and that he was six feet tall, in his twenties, and was a light-skinned black man. Jimmy, on the other hand, said that the man was six feet tall, around thirty years old, and was a dark-tanned white man. Um, okay, while those are not exactly inconsistent, they're about the same height, about the same age, about the same, uh, skin description. Like, 
This is suspiciously inconsistent. First of all, let's cut us kids some slack since they'd almost been murdered and were trying to identify someone that was wearing a mask in the dark after being temporarily blinded by a giant flashlight. But more importantly, how inconsistent is that really? The ages aren't that dissimilar, and it gave them at least a reasonable idea of the person's skin tone. Sure, they couldn't rule out either all white people or all black people, but they could rule out any white person that wasn't very tan or any black person that wasn't particularly light-skinned. Yeah, this is. What do you want, police? But there was a lot more to be annoyed about with the police than whether or not those eyewitness descriptions were consistent with one another. The police repeatedly challenged Mary and her account of the attack. I'm going to choose to believe that they focused on berating only her because Jimmy was still recovering from the skull fractures, not because they saw her as some sort of hysterical female. I get the feeling they saw her as a hysterical female. Also, Jimmy's recovering from his skull fractures while she's recovering from being raped with a gun. Police. What the f***? <laughs> it was decided that the attack was a random act of violence. I mean, that's accurate, but that shouldn't somehow constitute a free pass. What are you doing, police? It's, oh, it's a random act of violence, so we don't need to pursue this one. It was a, he cracked a dude's skull open and raped a woman with a gun. Get your together. Declaring something as a random act of violence isn't like declaring it force majeure. There is still a criminal who did this thing, and maybe you should keep an eye out to make sure they don't do it again. Yeah, maybe. This initial conclusion to the case was as bizarre as their insistence that the couple knew the attacker, and Jimmy summed it up best in his words to Sheriff Presley. If you don't find him, he's going to kill someone. Jimmy was right. <laughs> oh, God. Kevin, that is the most on-point subtitle. Despite the exceptionally violent nature of the attacks on Jimmy and Mary, it didn't really get a lot of attention. If something like that happened in my similarly populous town, people would absolutely lose their minds. And the fact that these people didn't leads me to question if Texarkana was really as safe a place as what the residents made it out to be. Yeah, if you're just if there's an incredibly violent crime like this that occurs, people, I live in a big city and I'd be shocked. These people would be like. It's a small town. 30,000 people is a small town. A month later, on Saturday, March the 23rd, police found a 1940 Hudson sedan that had been reported stolen 10 days earlier. The car was found abandoned near the Griffin residence, where 29-year-old Navy War veteran Richard Griffin was visiting his mother. That night, he and his 17-year-old girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore, 29 and 17, <laughs> the past <laughs> planned to spend the evening together they had dinner with richard's sister at around 10 p.m and then planned to go to a midnight movie followed by stopping at an all-night diner while we can't say for certain exactly what happened after dinner the good news is that means there won't be any gruesome details of what exactly followed it is believed that they went to the movie and dinner as planned before parking at a lover's lane in the early morning hours at around 9 a.m a driver passing by saw richard's car parked on the lover's lane he thought it was a bit odd for someone to be making such use of a place at that time of day so he decided to stop and take a look <laughs> bit of a looky loo hello hello i mean either concerned citizen or like what's going on here let's have a little look i'm sure he was just a concerned citizen good for you i don't remember what your name is that's okay. When he saw the couple in the car, he first thought that they were asleep, but upon closer inspection, they were definitely not sleeping. They were dead. The man went to the nearest payphone and called for the police. Once police arrived, it attracted a crowd who had been spreading the word of the double homicide that had taken place in their city. The public would again remain largely indifferent, but they were definitely aware of what happened. Okay, one violent attack is one thing, but there's a double murder in your small town? And they're just like, hey, I mean, I know about the double murder, but is this double murder what's this no it's okay we use it all the time polly was laying face down in the back seat while richard always between the front seats on his knees head resting on his crossed hands 
It's like, yeah, no, they could be sleeping in the weirdest position ever. Richard had been shot twice while in the car, and both victims had been shot in the back of the head. A patch of blood-soaked soil near the car led investigators to believe that the couple had been killed outside of the car, possibly while lying on a blanket, and then been posed inside the car. Richard's pockets were turned inside out, likely to make it appear as if robbery was the motive. The rumor at the time was that Polly had been sexually assaulted, though this has since been disproven. There was a single 32 cartridge casing, likely fired from an automatic Colt pistol, found, and it was believed that the casing may have been ejected from the pistol and wrapped in a blanket. I'm not entirely sure why the police's theories involve so many blankets, but I suppose wrapping the pistol in a blanket could be a way to attempt to collect the shell casings so as not to leave evidence. After all, there were multiple shots fired, but only a single casing found. Aren't you like, surely you're aware of how many shots you fired? So there'd be so many casings in your check to make sure. Although, who am I to say? This killer never got caught. It's an unsolved case. So he's one of the uh, competent criminals that we cover on this channel. Unlike most of them, which get caught and then either put in prison or killed, which is nice. After all, there were multiple shots fired, but only a single casing found. Regardless, the type of gun was a more important detail than the alleged blanket anyway. It was all they had to go on, as the rain that night and morning washed away any shoe prints that might have been used to help identify the killer. But an even more important detail is that authorities would not publicly connect these murders with the first attack until after the Phantom Killer had disappeared forever. It wasn't long after but it wasn't long enough. Because of this, the public thought that these murders were another isolated incident and didn't take it very seriously. The police, on the other hand, were taking it seriously. Although both incidents took place on the Texas side of Tex-Arcana, officers from both the Texas and Arkansas City Police took part in the investigation, along with the country's sheriff's departments of both Texas and Arkansas, the Texas Rangers, and the FBI. FBI, 1940, I guess the FBI's... Were they around in the 1940s? I guess so. But that's cool. The FBI are generally really good at solving crimes. Like, you know, the police, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think that these people are giving the bad evidence. It doesn't seem like he has any skin at all. And then the FBI come in and they're like, okay, so it's a, it's a light-skinned black man or a dark-skinned white man. It's not rocket science, is it, local police? <laughs> oh, I don't like that science stuff. I just rely on Jesus. Despite the complete lack of evidence in the murders, aside from a single shell casing and potentially the stolen car that was abandoned near Richard's mum's house, over 200 people were brought in for questioning and hundreds of false leads were chased down. There were three suspects that were detained based on having bloodied clothing, but they were all released once it was deemed that they had suitable explanations for the state of their clothes. There were considerable resources being dedicated to tracking the killer, but nothing was yielding any results. Double Double Murders Three weeks later, the next attack would finally get the attention of the public. <laughs> what are you up to, public? You're just like, do, 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 do. I'm going to go plow a field. Is is this in the South? Is, I don't even know where Arkansas is. I think it's, it's where Bill Clinton's from, right? And he kind of speaks like this, <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't, but he's he's got that Southern, you know, he's from the South, right? Arkansas sounds like, it's, it sounds Southern. And I know not everyone speaks from the South, but it's a super stereotypical accent. I'm so sorry, okay? It's just the only accent I know, so I like to use it. 15-year high school junior Betty Jo Booker was a skilled alto sax player, an officer in the school marching band, an A student, and former Little Miss Texarkana. Oh, good, Little Miss. So that means, like, child beauty pageants, which we've covered before as being weird. Uh, also, you're an officer in a marching band? That's kind of cool. On Saturday, April the 13th, she was performing at the local VFW Hall with a high school band, big band, Jerry Atkins and the Rhythmeries. Rhythm, Rhythmaires. 
with the mares maybe normally she would receive a ride home with either either jerry atkins or the other saxophone player but on that night she was scheduled to be picked up by 17 year old paul martin with whom she had been friends since kindergarten paul was going to drive her to a friend's house where she was having a sleepover the pair doesn't seem to have been romantically involved but these secluded parking spots weren't just for getting handsy with one another and they may have chosen to stop at a lover's lane just to talk and catch up a little bit yeah 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 or or they were getting handsy with each other the performance at the vfw ran late and betty and paul didn't leave the vfw hall until about 1 30 a.m paul's body would be found on the side of the road about 6 30 a.m by a family out for a morning walk he'd been shot four times and there was blood on the opposite side of the road indicating that he had tried to either run or crawl away from his attacker after the first shot once again we can only guess as to exactly what happened paul's body was found about a mile and a half from where his car was parked and there's no way for us to know how the killer got him this far or what exactly happened at the moment he decided to commit his heinous crime however it's likely that the first shot was the one that pierced paul's right hand he then may have turned around to flee with two more shots being fired as he ran one bullet went through his ribs from behind the other one through the back of his neck when he collapsed on the pavement the killer likely walked over to fire the fourth shot through paul's nose to guarantee that his victim was dead though the exact sequence of events can't be stated for certain it's a reasonable possibility given the locations of the four gunshot wounds that were inflicted upon paul in the presence of blood on the street this just left the question of where betty was she had never arrived at her friend's house and word of the murder and the missing girl quickly spread volunteers began setting up search parties with one such group being men and boys that left sunday school at the first methodist church to join the search but around 11:30 a.m that group found betty in a grove of trees over a mile from where paul was found and three miles from the car Betty's body was posed, lying on her back and fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. She had been shot once in the chest and once in the face. The gun was the same. 32 Colt pistol. Although she was found fully clothed, the autopsy revealed the presence of semen and vaginal bruising. Paul's genitals were clear of any sort of bodily fluid, so it was presumed that Betty was raped by her killer before being murdered and the body being staged. The Texarkana Gazette ran the headline, Teenage Couple Shot to Death and the public was finally beginning to get concerned what after two double murders they just now it's there's only 30,000 people in your town the odds of you being next are not that low this was the second double murder in under a month and the theory that the first had just been an isolated incident was now harder to sell two days later the texarkana daily news would run the headline phantom killer eludes officers with the gazette following suit the next day going with the headline phantom slayer still at large unfortunately these murders didn't give the police any more clues there was evidence that it was the same killer as before but no new evidence that might help identify who was behind the murders the only potential lead was that betty's saxophone was nowhere to be found leaving authorities to believe that the killer may have stolen it to sell it oh that is a huge mistake how are you an uncaught criminal you've stolen something you're gonna sell it from one of your murder victims that is just asking for trouble the final victims On May the 3rd, two troopers from the Arizona State Police were driving out of Texarkana to turn in their monthly expense report in Hope, Arkansas. As they neared the outskirts of the city, they noted an old car parked off the road near the 500-acre Starks farm. They decided that they would check it out when they returned from filing their paperwork, but by the time they made their way back to Texarkana, it would be too late. Sometime before 9 p.m., 37-year-old Virgil Starks was sitting in his armchair reading the newspaper as his wife, 36-year-old Katie Starks, prepared for bed. The window shade directly behind Virgil was only halfway closed, giving the killer a perfect view inside. Two rounds were fired, both hitting Virgil in the back of the head. 
Hearing the sound of breaking glass, Katie came to see what had happened. Katie saw the two bullet holes in the window and then saw Virgil attempt to stand, only to slump back in his chair. He was dead. She immediately ran to the old-fashioned crank telephone to call for help. She frantically began, began turning the crank to alert the telephone operator, but it only rang twice before two more shots were fired through the same window. The bullets hit Katie in the face, knocking out some of her teeth, with one bullet lodging under her tongue. Katie collapsed to the floor, but was quickly able to regain her footing. She tried to make her way back to the house to retrieve a pistol, but was having difficulty seeing through the blood dripping down her face. And that's when she heard the killer approaching the back door. She turned around and headed for the front door, running barefoot across the highway that separated her house from the house where her sister and brother-in-law lived, but nobody was home. Undeterred, Katie ran to the house next door, where she caught the attention of her neighbor, neighbor A.V. Prater. All she could say was Virgil's dead before collapsing. Peter grabbed his rifle and fired it into the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, because I guess that's how they do it in the South. Oh, we are in the South. Good. And, uh, I don't know. That's a, it's, it's the past. You're not just going to, like, send him a WhatsApp message. <laughs> that sounds like a, if, if I was, like, if, if a gunshot went off at my neighbor's house, I'd be like, hello? <laughs> hello? <laughs> Is everything okay? And actually, I'd just call the police, to be honest. <laughs> actually, I'd probably just knock on my other neighbor's door and be like, did you hear that gunshot? And they'd be like, yes. And they'd be like, should we call the police? And they'd probably be like, yes. <laughs> should we go back inside our houses and lock our doors? Yes. <laughs> Are we cowards? Absolutely. <laughs> He had Elmer fetch his car, and the two took Katie to the hospital where she'd make a full recovery. Initially, police were hesitant to link the Starks case with the other attacks. I mean, yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're quite different. But have a look at the bullets and then be like, okay. And rightfully so, of the four incidents, it was the only one to take place on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. The Starks were attacked before 9 p.m., whereas the other victims were all targeted much later at night, between roughly midnight and 3 a.m. They were also in their mid-30s, while the other victims had been younger couples, also always including at least one teenager. Most glaringly, the Starks were attacked in their home while the other victims were all parked in some secluded lover's lane. And if all that wasn't enough, when police arrived to investigate Virgil's murder and determine that the gun used was a 22 rifle, not a 32 Colt pistol, okay, um, this could be another just extremely random act of violence. But I, w- I don't know, it's a small town. Uh, how many murders are there? Aside from the relative proximity to the Phantom Killer's other attacks, there wasn't anything to link the incident to the others. This was almost certainly an unrelated crime. How many crimes are going on in this town? Is it really so certainly unrelated? As I said, police were hesitant to link them in the first place, and by 1948, the Starks were no longer considered connected to the other murders. Despite not being committed by the same killer, this incident remains important to the story because of what happened next. Ooh. Okay, I wonder how it's connected then. Kevin seems very convinced that it's not connected. I assume that's because he's researched and more familiar with the case than I am. I wouldn't write it off so so quickly. But okay, let's see how it's connected. Let's let's just move on. Citywide hysteria. As is often the case, the police posted a reward for information that could lead to the arrest of the Phantom Killer. It's also common for residents to contribute money to the reward fund in hopes that it will keep them safe and expedite the search. On March the 30th, about a week after the murders of Richard and Polly, the police were offering a $500 reward. Within days of the murders of Betty and Paul, the fund had grown up to over $1,700. The night Virgil was murdered, the fund shot up to over $7,000. And this is like past money. That's going to be like at least seventy dollars today. 
And in the next 10 days, it would exceed $10,000, which is over $150,000 in today's money. But the sudden spike in the reward being offered was just the smallest part of the fear that was gripping the people of Texarkana. Stores began instituting curfews, and theaters stopped showing late-night movies in the hopes that it would keep people off the streets. People began locking their doors and windows at night for the first time, and stores completely sold out of guns, ammo, Venetian blinds, and deadbolt locks. Is that true? They'd sold out of blinds? Families oh, would set up rudimentary alarm systems in their homes using pots, pans, and fishing lines to alert them if anyone tried to open a door while they slept, and there was a sudden increase in the number of families that kept dark guard dogs as pets. If a husband had to go out of town for a night on business and the family could afford it, his wife and children would check into the unfortunately named Hotel Grimm, seeking safety in numbers. That's pretty smart. I think, you know, safety in numbers is a thing. Hotel Grimm is a unfortunate name for a hotel. Where are you staying? Oh, we're staying over at the Grimm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Grimm. The once relatively peaceful city had suddenly become an incredibly dangerous place. The citizens were armed and terrified, and things were made worse thanks to Texas Ranger Manuel Trazasas Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Despite seeming like a pretty cool nickname, Lone Wolf was not meant as a compliment. Manuel got his nickname because he didn't work well with others, but not in the sense of a badass renegade cop who didn't play by the rules but got results, damn it. No, he was heavily criticized for being a media showman who took credit for the work of other officers and spent entirely too much time with female reporters. Uh-oh. Manuel also stoked the fears of the citizens, telling them that in the days following Virgil's murder to oil their guns, make sure they were loaded, and not to hesitate if they thought it was necessary to use them. How about you hesitate just a little bit before shooting somebody? And the people definitely thought it was necessary. Where residents had once sat on their porches at night chatting with anyone who passed by, now they sat on their porches at night with loaded guns in hand or waiting, waiting for intruders. If the police had to go to a house and ask questions of the owner, they now needed to show up with their sirens blaring, stand directly in their headlights to make themselves visible, and identify themselves before attempting to approach the house. Am I, am I getting the feeling that people are going to die because of this extreme state of readiness? That there's going to be, uh, you know, lots of accidental shootings? Anything less than the nervous homeowner might start unloading their weapon on what they saw as a potential intruder. The city was also overflowing with rumors about the killer. There were your typical rumors and false accusations that only intensify people's panic and waste police time, but there was also the belief that the phantom killer had already been arrested and the police were keeping it secret because he was the son of a prominent and wealthy family. Yeah, it doesn't take long for those conspiracy theories to start popping up, does it? There were an awful lot of baseless rumors and speculation, and it was only making it harder for the authorities to try and track down potentially meaningful leads. Police and residents alike also began trying to lay traps for the killer. Authorities had been already been pulling surveillance, lovers' lanes, and even had officers hiding atop trees to keep watch while remaining out of sight. But rather than simply watching, they decided it was time to use themselves as bait. Channeling their inner Steve Buscemi, the police would disguise themselves as teenagers and park on secluded roads, sometimes with a real partner and sometimes with a mannequin. The authorities weren't the only ones to have this idea, and vigilante teenagers have been trying to bait the killer out on their own. An Arkansas state trooper noticed a car parked on Lover's Lane late at night and decided to investigate. He saw a couple in the car, so he came up to introduce himself and asked if they weren't afraid to be parked alone with the killer on the loose. The girl replied, It's a good thing you told me who you are, as she revealed the pistol that she'd been about to kill the officer with. I'm sure they had a good laugh about it afterwards. <laughs> like, I know, it's too scary. You almost killed me, and I'm a cop. What are you doing? Don't be vigilantes. Over the course of the investigation, hundreds of people were brought in for questioning. There were countless false leads, insane rumors, and false confessions, but there were only a few theories that weren't completely insane. 
The first promising suspect came just six days after the murders of Betty and Paul. Friends had seen Betty put her saxophone in the back of Paul's car, but it was missing once the bodies were found. A suspicious man had gone to the music store in Corpus Christi, Texas to inquire about selling an alto sax. The store clerk said that he have to get his manager, and the man immediately became cagey and evasive of the manager's questions before fleeing from the store. That's the guy. Just check the surveillance. No, wait, this is the past. Because of his suspicious behavior, police were called, and they were able to locate and arrest the man. He didn't have the saxophone in his possession, but he did have a bag of bloody clothing. Oh my god, how is this not the guy? The man claims that he had gotten bloodied in a bar fight, and after being held in custody for several days for questioning, witnesses from the bar were able to corroborate his story, and the man was set free. Oh, okay. Betty's saxophone would be found some months later in the underbrush near where the body was discovered. This only leaves us with two main suspects. Okay. Um, I guess that, that guy selling the alto saxophone with the blood on his clothes is mega unfortunate. It's just a coincidence. It has to be. They corroborate him. They found the saxophone elsewhere. I'd have been like, get that guy in prison. That's me getting railroaded as a cop, right? <laughs> we talk about that. The police, like, they find someone they like, and they're like, it's you, and I'm going to make the evidence fit you. Not intentionally, just because that's, you know, humans don't like to be wrong. So I'd be hunting that guy down, and it'd be like, it's not me. I was in the fight. There's evidence. There's witnesses. Duty Tennyson. In 1948, Henry Booker Doody Tennyson was an 18-year-old college freshman attending the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. It was in the room he was renting from a family that he would be found dead, having poisoned himself with mercury cyanide that he purchased, claiming that he wanted to use it as pest control for rats. Henry left behind an awful lot of written material following his death. He had written his own epitaph, headlines for the papers to run, riddles, and incomplete letters. Police found everything he had written, but it's possible this was not his intent. Of everything he left behind, there were three main notes. The first was a letter that he had titled The Final Word. This was on top of his desk in a brown folder and would have been the first note the authorities found. The letter began, Please disregard all other messages which I have written. They are only thoughts which I was thinking about as possible reasons for taking my own life. As I think about it, it is none of these things. It's a long note, but the rest of it isn't very important for our purposes. According to one forensic psychiatrist, this was the only note that was intended to be read by the police. For some reason, Henry could have expected them to follow his instructions of disregarding everything else he had written down and deliver his personal effects to his family. They did not, and they also found the instructions note. This letter contained instructions about his funeral and other aspects of what to do with his belongings, as well as an extremely simple riddle that gave the combination to his lockbox. There was also a note containing a different riddle, which seemed to have been discarded. That riddle directed the reader to look inside the Beeb fountain pen on his desk, which he had used to sign the letters. Hidden on a piece of paper rolled up inside the pen was a combination to the lockbox. The lockbox contains personal items as well as the confession note. It's believed by some that this confession note was intended only for his family, but after being discovered by authorities, it was published in the Texarkana Gazette, the most pertinent part of the letter reading, Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, or no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. Wait. I get the feeling that Kevin doesn't believe this, because didn't we, he say that it's very unlikely that the Starks murders were originally uh, connected to the original ones? So why would he confess to this and then kill himself? That doesn't really make any sense. That's a pretty clear confession. Yeah, but also false confessions, like Kevin literally writes here, but false confessions happen all the time. And it's like, sometimes they're just for crazy reasons. Sometimes it's just because the person's a bit mad. 
And that's it. And that's kind of enough. <laughs> like false confessions are a thing. It's why you need like evidence. Do you need evidence if someone confesses? I feel like you should definitely check confessions. Not because you don't want like, okay, you, yeah, you don't want an innocent person to go to prison. But if they're confessing, I mean, okay. Especially false confessions not under duress. But also because there could be some, the, 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 the real person who did all the murdering is still out there. If you're just like, ah, oh, it's him. Lock him up. Done. Easy. But, but, next case. There was also the belief that this was a lie and was contradicted by his letter, The Final Word. Police naturally looked into the matter, but one of Henry's friends provided an alibi for the night of the attack on the Starks. There was also no physical evidence to link him to the crimes, not that there was any physical evidence linking anyone else to the crimes either. Seeing as the murders remain unsolved, whether the confession was sincere or not is anybody's guess. To this day, Henry has not been officially ruled out as a suspect. One person who seems to believe that Henry could be the killer is Dr. John Tennyson, the forensic psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier, and Henry Henry's first cousin once removed. He certainly feels that Henry is the most compelling suspect. It is important to note that once removed portion of the relationship means that John is younger and, in fact, wasn't born until long after Henry had committed suicide. The two never met one another. John put forth the theory that only the final word was intended for the police and that the confession and other materials was meant only to be read by his family, not published in the newspaper. He also claimed that Henry had a connection to all of the victims. Many of the young victims attended the movie theater where Henry worked as an usher. That would seem pretty inconsequential by itself, but the first two couples were both attacked after leaving the movies. Coincidentally, those victims are the ones not explicitly named in the letter. Betty and Paul had been at the VFW hall rather than at the movies, but Henry was the trombonist for Jerry Atkins and the Rhythm Airs, and as for the Starks, one of Henry's friends lived directly across the street in the same house as Katie's sister. But he has an alibi. He had an alibi for the Starks. When Henry left for college, he was six foot three, which would make him taller than the man who attacked Jimmy and Mary that first night. However, it was also two years earlier, and he would have only been 16 at the time. While most boys reach their maximum height when they're 16, it's not that unusual to continue growing after the age of 20, and there are some reports that Henry had an unusual growth spurt around the time he left for college. Yeah, people like, I think I was pretty, yeah, I think I topped out probably like 15, 16, but other people didn't. Yeah, this could definitely be him. I was six feet when I left for college and six two when I came home after my first semester. Whoa, growing in college? No, I was definitely done by then. I was done like a long time before. I wish I had grown like two extra inches. Then I would also be like, well, I'd be like, I'm 5'11 and a bit. <laughs> Actually, I'm just shy of six foot, basically. And then I'd be over six foot, which would be nice because then I'd be like, six foot, that's right. <laughs> that's right, so tall. Why does this matter? And well, I'm pretty happy with how tall I am. Especially both my parents are short. <laughs> like my dad and my mom, both much shorter than me. Good. I don't know, four or five inches shorter than me. My uncle is incredibly tall. So I definitely got something from there. I'm going to say that it's definitely, definitely possible for him to have been the right height two years earlier. Plus, six feet was an estimate from the victims, not an exact measurement, so he could have been a tiny bit taller at 16 as well. There's no hard evidence beyond Henry's own confession letter, or which he may or may not have contradicted in his final word letter. But it's certainly interesting. He seemed to have at least a passing connection with all of the victims in a way that would have provided opportunity. He was also probably the right height, although he was much younger than the victims reported, and from the pictures, I also find him also much paler. 
This just leaves the question of motive. Why would a 16-year-old boy with no history of violence and with what sounds like a good upbringing commit such horrific acts of violence? Henry was clearly depressed, and his letters made it sound as though he felt like a burden and that he was wasting his life and his family's generosity in sending him to college. He thought that his family would be happier and better able to get on with their own lives if he was gone. That certainly speaks to why he committed suicide, but it doesn't present any rationale for committing multiple murders. In his confession, after stating that he committed his crimes, he didn't give any reasoning or justification for it. He simply moved on to saying to give his typewriter to his brother and the viewmaster a toy that he'd bought to, his to the 12-year-old daughter of the couple he was renting the room from and whom Henry had claimed to have fallen in love with about a week prior. But that's an entire... <laughs> How old is he? 16? It's a bit weird. But that's an entirely different issue, and one that he fortunately does not seem to have acted out on anyway, besides the Viewmaster as a parting gift. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, got it. Yule Swinney In June, one of the Arkansas state troopers was investigating a case of non-payment of rent, because apparently that's a thing the police used to have to look into. Wait, <laughs> yeah, that definitely sounds very much like a civil matter. According to the landlord, the 29-year-old man by the name of Yule Swinney was several months behind on his rent and needed to be tracked down. The landlord gave the officer a description of Yule's car, along with a license plate number. After running the plate, it was discovered that the car was a stolen vehicle. This wasn't a huge shock, as Yule was a known car thief and counterfeiter with a rap sheet that went back to his juvenile years. It was also shortly before this that the connection had finally been made between stolen cars and the murders. Shortly before each attempt, the car that had been reported as stolen was found abandoned in relative proximity to where the murders and assaults took place. Police put out a bulletin for Yule's stolen car, but it was actually a tip from one of his own relatives that helped the police track the car down. According to this relative, there was a certain parking lot in Texarkana where Yule would always park his cars. Sure enough, the car was in the lot, so police set up a stakeout to wait for him to return. But instead of finding Yule returning to the car, they wound up arresting 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. She informed police that she had married Yule earlier that day, but she didn't know where he was at the moment. <laughs> okay. Once taken into custody, Peggy confessed in great detail that Yal was the phantom killer. The only problem is that her details kept changing. Police believed that she was withholding information for fear of implicating herself in the murders. However, with each new telling of the story, she took a more active role. <laughs> liar! Liar! Get the negotiation thing. Get that, uh, what's it called? Immunity? for testifying or whatever just get that done get that lawyer in a second interview regarding the murders of becky and paul peggy said that she and yule had parked at spring lake park and had some beers she then claimed that yule told her he needed to take a leak at which point he disappeared from the car for an hour before she heard two gunshots ring through the air jesus christ <laughs> i'm just gonna have a pee i'll be back in an hour <laughs> As daybreak approached, Yule returned to the car and put back and put a black case in the trunk. Peggy said that he was wet up to his knees and damp up to his waist, potentially from washing blood off of his clothes in the lake. By the third interview, Peggy was painting herself as being much more involved rather than just needing to water the plants after enjoying some road beers. In this telling, Yule said that he was leaving the car to go and park and rob someone. Peggy insisted on coming and was with him when they found the car with Betty and Paul inside it. She claimed that Yule pulled the gun on the kids and when she refused to search them for money, he got angry and shot Paul twice. I have to say, isn't this how it works? She's like, she tells a story where she's not involved and the police like, don't believe you. And then the, she's like, okay, I was this involved in the police like I don't believe you. It's like, okay, I was this involved in the police like I don't believe you. She's like, I did it! That's how interrogation works, right? So this doesn't seem like unbelievable. It just seems like the story is being pried out of her by the police. 
Or maybe she's just insane and making it up because I thought the last guy was quite a likely suspect. Peggy then held Betty in place while Yule went to retrieve his car. When he arrived, he made both of them get inside. Paul had survived the gunshots and was trying to crawl to safety, so Yule shot him two more times before driving away with Peggy and Betty. After driving a couple of miles, Yule took Betty into the woods. When he returned, he told Peggy that he had tried to get some from the young girl, but shot her when she refused. Dude. The stories were inconsistent with each other, possibly because Peggy was initially trying to protect herself, and possibly because she was outright lying. But it meant that she was going to be an unreliable witness. Not only that, but as Yule's wife, they couldn't even force her to testify against him. Oh, I've heard of this. Right. Can you be forced to testify against anyone? Is forced testimony a thing? You, can't you just, um, what's that thing? Uh, oh God, it's right there. It's some amendment or some constitution thing. Pleading the fifth. Can't you plead the fifth? Or is that just about protecting yourself? Maybe that's just about protecting yourself. So you, you could be forced to testify? Wow. Okay. What if you just shut up? Do they hold you in contempt? That's intense. Even so, the police were convinced that they had found the killer, and Peggy was an idiot who couldn't keep the details straight. According to one of the interrogating officers, Peggy's bread wasn't baked. The elevator didn't go all the way up to the top. <laughs> Savage. But Sheriff Presley was convinced of Yule's guilt based on one simple detail Peggy had. During a third interview, he asked her if Yule was, had taken anything out of Paul's pocket. Peggy replied that he had taken some papers or stuff and thrown it in the bushes. The sheriff then pulled out Martin's datebook, a piece of evidence that he had found in the bushes of the crime scene, but hadn't told a single person about. Because I guess all the rules we have today regarding evidence didn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, it's like no chain of custody. I mean, of course, like things develop with time definitely. Convinced or not, the police were still going to need evidence. Peggy ultimately wound up recanting her confession, and they couldn't force her to testify anyway. Yule's fingerprints didn't match anything found at the crime scene, and he didn't own a gun that matched either of the ones used in the murders. All they could do was hope to get a confession from him. Two weeks after Peggy's arrest, Yule was arrested after trying to sell a stolen car in Atlanta, Texas. His attempted sale had caught the attention of the police, who caught up with him at the Arkansas Motor Coach Station. Following a short chase, an Arkansas detective called cornered Yule trying to climb up a fire escape, at which point he begged the officer not to shoot. When the detective told him, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars, Yule replied, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. Oh, Yule, what are you doing? Don't admit your crimes. The police officer is going to be like, well, definitely going to look into you a bit more thoroughly, aren't we? He was then arrested and brought to the police station. As the deputy sheriff carted him off to a jail cell, Yule asked, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Or will they give me the chair? Bro. Bro. <laughs> They loaded you so hard. That is three extremely incriminating statements, and as they say, three strikes and you're out. But not with regard to the murders, of course. Despite spending six months trying to find any evidence to link Yule or Peggy to the attacks, police couldn't find a single thing, and Peggy's inconsistent confessions were useless. Instead, it was three strikes uh, with regard to car theft. As a habitual offender, Yule would be eligible to receive life in prison for the stolen cars. That's insane. The three strikes rule? Isn't that where it's like you do three big crimes and you go to jail forever? But big crime could be like possession of drugs, stealing a car. How about we don't send people to prison for life just because they do three big crimes? That's crazy. Police viewed this as a de facto plea bargain for the murders. You'll refuse to confess to murder, but he was so terrified of being sent to the electric chair that he agreed not to contest the habitual offender charge. 
He went to trial in 1947, where he attempted to plead guilty, but wasn't actually allowed to, as the habitual offender charge required a jury trial. Instead, he let the prosecution present their case without opposition and was sentenced to life in prison, uh, which lasted for 26 years. In 1973, one of his previous convictions from 1941 was overturned because he was not given legal representation. Because this prior conviction was the basis for the enhanced sentencing that he had received as a repeat offender, he was released from prison. He seemed to live a quiet life after prison and died in the Dallas nursing home in 1993. Wrap up. To this day, the Phantom Killer of Texarkana remains an open case with virtually no evidence. There are the two eyewitness accounts from Jimmy and Mary, neither of whom could identify their masked attacker. Then there are the contradictory confessions from Peggy, a woman whose sanity was called into question by one of the investigators who interviewed her. And then there is the written confession from Henry, which may or may not have been contradicted by his other writings. As far as physical evidence that modern forensics could use to identify new leads, there is nothing. We'll likely never know the identity of the Phantom Killer, and since the crime was almost certainly unrelated, nor will we know the identity of the person that attacked the Starks in their home. While Henry was certainly suffering from a lot of guilt and mental anguish, I disagree with Dr. Tennyson that his cousin is the most compelling suspect. If his confession is taken at face value, then of course he would be, but people confessed to crimes they didn't commit all the time. I'm not going to speculate as to why he would have done so, but I don't believe he was the killer. I'm not so... I mean... I don't, I don't know. I'm not willing to write him off so easily. Yule, on the other hand, I think is a much more compelling suspect. Yeah, but I, I also agree Yule is more compelling. He was the right height and age for the killer, and maybe it's just the quality of the black and white photography, but he looks like he was extraordinarily tan as well. Then, of course, there are his extremely suspicious statements upon being arrested and the confessions from his wife. Yeah, he basically confessed, are they going to give me the chair? Bro, you know they're not giving you the chair for stealing cars, dude. The two had gotten married mere hours before Peggy was arrested, so why implicate him in the murders if he was innocent? She clearly knew Yule was a criminal before they got married, but she would have also known that he was no Al Capone. She wasn't going to suddenly control a vast fortune if he was shipped off to prison forever. It's all very suspicious, but I'm still not convinced. Many of the officers involved were convinced that they got their man when Yule went to prison for 26 years, but there is another wrinkle in the story. According to a front-page story for the Texarkana Gazette from 1946, on the night that Betty and Paul were murdered, there was proof that Yule and Peggy were sleeping in their car under a bridge in San Antonio, over 450 miles away. So who was the Phantom Killer? There was proof that they were... So it's not them, then! <laughs> oh, God, and that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for watching. If you enjoy the show, please do uh, leave it a review. Uh, oh, if you're listening, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.